The CEO Roundtable brings together operations professionals at the top of their game to define and explore what it means to be highly effective in a scale-up organization. And what sits at the heart of it is highly curated peer-to-peer roundtables where CEOs talk about things that matter. I absolutely love my roundtable. We've been together for about two years, and without exaggeration, I have made friends for life. To find out more, go to coroundtable.com. That's coroundtable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Operations Room, a podcast for COOs. I am Brandon Mensinga, joined by my amazing co-host, Bethany Ayers, who was just uh, <laughs> giving herself a couple slaps in the face to wake her up for this podcast recording. <laughs> How are things going, Bethany? They're going mostly well, Brandon. I got my Zoe results back. What? Your Zoe results? Do tell. Yeah. So just as a bit of a recap for anybody who hasn't listened to the previous one, I decided to do Zoe, the customized diet thing. And it required all kinds of different tests to happen. My finger is still sore from the blood one. And I'm not sure if I'm ever going to get feeling back in my finger. Okay. Finger has been sliced and diced. Destroyed. But I got my results back on Saturday. And when you're filling in all of their paperwork, one of the things is you have to guess whether you think you are more or less reactive to sugar than average and the same with fat. And so for sugar, I was like, yeah, I can handle sugar, no problem. I'll be less reactive than average. And it's like, oh no, I won't overthink it. I'll say I'm average because chances are average. I'm going to be right. And then for fat, I thought because everybody in my family has cardiovascular disease, it makes sense that I'm going to be more reactive or clear fat less. Totally wrong. So I am fine clearing fat. I can now eat as many avocados and nuts as I can possibly manage in a day, but I can't eat any sugar. You get a score out of 100, and 100 is somebody who can handle glucose no problem, and zero is somebody who can't handle it at all. And my score was 14. Sorry, let me just get this straight. So basically, you can process uh, fats like nobody's business, but when it comes to sugars, you're in the tank. Totally, yeah. And so I remember your story about wanting to injure people for a piece of bread. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Having started this on Saturday, getting my results on Saturday, and I'm like, oh my God, anything with any level of glucose or a bad carb is like, I'm never going to be able to eat again. I can really sympathize. There have definitely been moments of passing the croissants and just like, oh, I could eat them all, all of them. So the the Zoe outcome or result has put you on a basically unsustainable pathway whereby you need to avoid sugars for the rest of your life. (laughs) (laughs) Including like parsnips and sweet potatoes. (laughs) You have to be able to have fruits. Yeah. Raspberries. Raspberries are great. I can eat my body weight in raspberries. Lemons are apparently particularly bad. I have no idea. It's not like they seem very, yeah, there's other mixes to things. So Zoe says it's all supposed to be in moderation and there are no bad foods and now you can eat it all. But the perfectionist in me is like, no, I will not do that ever. And I now have to win every day. To your point, it's all in moderation. So you have to have a pathway that you feel somehow you can actually work with as opposed to not eating sugars for the rest of your life. I don't know. We'll we'll see. But what I also realized in this whole process is that I've always been obsessed by food, but I eat food 
and I don't purge. <laughs> I don't think I have an eating disorder. <laughs> Let's hope not. Yes. All right. <laughs> and other than in August when I basically live in a bikini and then have some body image issues, 11 months out of the year, I'm pretty okay with my weight and body image. And so I was like, I don't think I have a, an eating disorder, but I think I have an abnormal obsession with food. And Work this through with my therapist and realize that I have some level of medical anxiety when it comes to food, which I didn't even know was a thing. And I didn't realize I was anxious. And I also just thought that I was like responsible. And this is what we should all think about food. I was really obsessed by it. So I read the Glucose Goddess book and in it, she mentions non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and how it's rising. And now you can see it in 10-year-olds. And so then every time my children eat a Haribo, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> they have fatty liver disease. <laughs> okay, so you have medical uh, anxiety related to food, whereby if you do something like Zoe or you read a book that has some particular piece of information, it makes you kind of like obsess about it in some form. Yeah. So there's a combination. It's like, obviously, we're all going to die, and I know that we're all going to die, but I have to try my absolute hardest to make sure that whatever kills me is not my fault. <laughs> and not diet related in any form whatsoever. Exactly. You're going you're to be run over by a bus, Bethany. And that's okay. As long as I looked both ways and I tried my best to not get run over by the bus. So there's that level to it. And then also having grown up in America and then moved to the UK and there being really no concept of preventative medicine here, you have no idea if you have fatty liver disease because you might just have it without any symptoms and then you might just die. Whereas in America, you get lots of blood tests and you would know, and you'd have the indicators of it. And so the only thing I can control is what I eat and what my family eats. And now that I realize this is what's going on in my head, it's just such a relief because now I can be like, ah, no, 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 no. That's just anxiety speaking. Like, that's okay. Let's hold this lightly and laugh a little bit. So with that, we have got a two-part series, which is Life After Being a Chief Operating Officer, What's Next? And in our two-part series, we have part one today, which is really from the investor angle. So going from COO to investor, and we've got Cleo Sham, former COO of Spotahome and currently venture partner at Stride VC. And I guess we'll get an update from her as to where she's at with that as well. So before we get to that, Bethany, I guess what I wanted to do was to really unpack your, your situation. You've been chief of staff slash CEO of New Voice Media. You've been the CEO of Peak. And you're really at this point in your career where you're transitioning into board roles. What's your mindset as it stands right now in terms of you've done a variety of roles and a lot of it's gravitated around the CEO profession? And what is it that you're now thinking about as you head into kind of 2023 and 24? This ties in a bit to what I was just talking about that we're all going to die. And I, spend a lot of time thinking about this, partially because, so my father died when he was 52, which isn't that much older than I am now. And he also had epilepsy and Hodgkin's disease, so cancer when he was a child and never really thought he was going to grow up, never thought he was going to be able to have children because he had such high levels of radiation. He was the first generation of kids to survive the thyroid cancer. And so I was raised with this one parent who was like, life is short. We don't know what's going to happen. Fuck everyone else and do what you want. 
And then I was also raised on the other side of like, oh my God, emergencies, emergencies, everything's a disaster. Everything is anxiety and we have to be as good as we possibly can be. Otherwise, God is just going to smite us. And I ended up internalizing a lot of that and have spent most of my life being a high achiever, doing what is socially acceptable and expected of me and looking for a lot of status, looking for influence, but always really being unhappy, like having moments of enjoying my jobs and lots of existential issues and dilemmas. And I just realized that I am going to die. We are going to die. And I just don't want to live that way anymore. And I don't really care what other people think. I still do in some ways, but for the most part, I don't. Because my parents died when I was so young, I was lucky enough to inherit some money. Um, We had an exit with New Voice Media. And so I just put all this money away for tomorrow. And then I realized, well, like maybe today is tomorrow. Maybe I can use it. Maybe I can't. Maybe I should. Maybe I shouldn't. And then I just decided, well, let's pretend I actually have money in the bank because surprise, surprise, I do. Like, what do I want to do with my life if I don't have to worry all the time, mostly about money? And I was like, well, okay, I still like business. I care about it. I like working with businesses, but I don't like the day-to-day drudgery. I want to have fun. I want to explore. So let me just do that. And so I have. That makes entirely good sense because I think you're exactly right. Once you start getting to the end of your 40s, entering your 50s, I think there's a recognition that a lot of us have, I think, at that point where you know from a high-impact standpoint, you've got a good decade ahead of you. And the question is, what are you going to do with that decade? And to your point, if you're financially in a position where you can flex other options and you have the background that you just talked about, it really gives you a real possibility set that's in front of you right now that previously you may not have been either open to or possible to have had. So that sounds phenomenal. And then, so when you take that thought that you just expressed to me, what is the next drill down of thinking that you're going through, I guess, in terms of next steps? So this podcast is one of those. I guess wrote an epic post about all of these thoughts and Brandon, you saw it and responded and said, do you want to do a podcast? And I was like, yeah, that sounds like fun. So one of my big overarching ones is is it going to be fun or not? And if it's fun, I'll do it. And if it's if not, I won't. So this is one of those results. The board seats, as I talked about, because I still really do enjoy business and like solving those problems and working in those ways. And I would miss it if I if I didn't. I am starting a community for ambitious people who want to have meaningful conversations. I've managed to put my Substack up. I have some people who are interested. There was momentum. I went on holiday, lost all the momentum. So that's definitely one of the things that I have to do in the next couple of weeks because I would like to create the community that I'm looking for myself, which are people who are like, okay, we're going to die. So how do we live? And also are ambitious and are not afraid of making money and are not afraid of pushing themselves, but can still have conversations. So that's something else that I'm working on. Recently got really frustrated that the UK hasn't legalized, nor does it look like it's going to be legalizing cannabis anytime soon. Being an American, you being North American, like we're just, people are talking about it. Everybody in America is smoking or eating or drinking cannabis. And it's just like this big, scary thing in the UK that only like dirty people do. I think there's just a massive, massive stigma. Everybody I speak to is like, oh yeah, that would be amazing. But nobody's willing to talk about it. So again, my community is around bringing to the surface things that people feel but are afraid to mention. 
And so I'd like to get, and so anybody who's listening who has contacts in the cannabis industry and would like me to get involved, please get in touch. In the meantime, I'm networking like crazy to figure out how to become involved. And then on a personal development front, I'm taking a most amazing writing course and I'm in level two of 10. It kills me every week. I hate it with a passion every single time I have to write. And then I love the class itself. And so I keep going. And I'm also doing a pottery course. So I'm making pots. That is quite the spectrum, I would say. <laughs> uh, but that's great. I mean, some are pure play kind of creative endeavors. And obviously, some are more business-oriented. And some are more spiritual-oriented, I suppose. So that's kind of a nice mix, uh, it seems like. If you were to give advice to somebody in their 40s, in the midst of their careers right now, really trying to progress themselves up to the more senior levels, the, the CEO roles and so on, and are really looking for kind of a bit of a nudge, I guess, just in terms of their ability to be open, to be vulnerable, to put themselves out there, to have a voice. And, you know, I, I even think about myself in this respect, which is just purely as an example, this podcast, right? Because it's required for me something I don't, I'm not hugely comfortable with, which is putting myself in a public forum and sharing not just business stuff, but more of like who Brandon is in a lot of ways. Individuals in their 40s as they're progressing their careers right now, is there anything that you would tell those types of individuals if you want to drive yourself towards happiness and unlocking yourself in different aspects, whether it's spiritual, business, or creative? What is it that you could say to that, that individual? Everything I'm going to say is going to sound so trite. So one is we're all going to die. So make the best of being alive. And we all have a fear of being excluded and othered. And it totally makes sense. And we have a lot of shame because we're in a group. And if you're exiled, the lions are going to eat you. And so there's like a really physiological desire to fit in. And it's really scary to not fit in. And so what I've learned, and this is definitely a Brené Brown thing, is shame dies in the light. And so don't just go and indiscriminately share your shame and worries with everybody because you don't know how they're going to react, but share it with the safe people and share little bits and realize that actually you get a lot of support. And then just work a little bit more and a little bit more and you'll start to realize that it's not so scary to be yourself. And then you can start to be yourself and more of yourself in bigger environments. And when you're solid on who you are, it hurts less when somebody decides that you're not who they want you to be. So with that, why don't we switch over to our conversation with Cleo Shem. And thank you, Bethany, for sharing all that as well. I am delighted to welcome Cleo Shem to the operations room today. Hi, Cleo. Hey, Beth. Hey, Brendan. Cleo is an absolutely amazing person. I've had the honor of sitting on a board with her, and I think she is definitely part of my hypothesis that women in senior positions need to be outstanding where men can just be good. And Cleo is definitely an example of an outstanding <laughs> senior woman. Cleo was originally, or not originally, but in terms of some of the amazing things she's done, she was general manager and then senior in operations at Uber for EMEA. And then she was COO at Spot a Home, a uh, Series B startup, and then was most recently a partner at Stride, which is when I had the great pleasure of working with her. So Cleo, 
we've never really had a chance to talk about. And something that I'd like to cover today is that transition from operator to investor. So many questions in that. Before I ask all 20 in one go, I guess I'd first like to understand what made you decide to make that transition. In my specific situation, I wasn't brand new to investing. I think that's an important piece of context. And my first passion was actually investing, um, specifically value investing. I spent some time at a bank as a prop trader, uh, running a book of long-short equities. I was drawn to investing because of the sea of opportunities that you're basically presented with and their seemingly uncapped upside and the buffet of sort of learning opportunities right, that you, you have basically about any business you'd like to dig into and learn about. So that was kind of the genesis of my interest in investing. And then you learn and apply mental models on how to screen companies and how to size your bets. So I learned those early lessons at the prop desk, but then I realized as a person who liked tangible things and tangible businesses and who also liked working with teams, that stock investing was a little bit too academic. And so that's when I switched to to scale-ups and that's when I joined Uber. And so... As, as a COO, which I think you and probably many of the audience here can relate to, is I love thinking through business drivers and together with the team, prioritizing where to place time and resources and make decisions backed by data. And then executing, seeing results come through, and that was very satisfying. I was, and I'm still, I think, an adrenaline drunk junkie and a bit of a masochist. Love the pace, uh, the pressure, the workload, and the firefighting that came with it. And so that's still a very big part of how I work. Love building teams, um, developing team members, uh, the people aspect as well. And so after COVID cut my time at Spotify short, you know, we unfortunately had to do a big restructure. I took some time off and spent more time intentionally finding opportunities to work with founders. I had already been angel investing for a couple of years um, as, a, as a hobby. And so I felt it was an interesting way to understand what else was in the ecosystem, but also spending time um, helping founders, which realized gave me a lot of joy. That feeling and that sort of learning made me think you know, quite seriously about going to VC full time, which was ultimately what I did. And so VC to me is a great combination of both applying knowledge of building businesses through supporting founders, but also assessing businesses. And also combining that with the investing skill set, which is looking with uh, looking at a very diverse range of topics and companies, you know, sizing investments, negotiating deals, managing a portfolio of, of companies uh, or you know of, of investments, etc. From that investment background that you originally had coming out of university and some of those investment kind of activities that you were doing at the time, how does that investment mindset that you had originally how did that inform your operations roles that you ultimately took what was the value in that as it kind of informed your operations role at uber and as your ceo role at Spotahome? and then the converse i guess which is coming off the back of several years of being an operator and operations quite specifically how did that reinform your investing role as you headed into stride vc in this case to the first part of your question so how investing influenced my journey as an operator. I think, I guess what was interesting about being at a prop desk is that you are flooded with information each day, you know, from the Bloomberg terminal, from the news, but also from the sort of fundamental research, at least that was my approach, that, that you want to do on companies. So I was constantly building models, reading financial reports, looking at the news, and then ultimately making decisions that were stemming from an understanding of the business drivers 
of a given company, but also from the data that I'm seeing, right, from the financial results and the economics. And so doing that day in, day out, I think gave me some confidence in trusting my gut, but also making decisions based on data. And so that gave me sort of like initial practice and then feeling of making decisions based on data and being quite decisive about it and actually putting money behind it. So that was quite a stressful sort of environment to operate in because you have to carry the PL and if the book is negative one day, it's not, it's not great. And so getting acclimatized to that pressure and to that sort of decision-making under uncertainty, but backed by data was quite a you know, useful sort of experience. And then the second part to it is I think, you know, if you work in the public markets, you understand that the market is not rational, really, right? You have um, people who try and make decisions rationally, but then you always have many kind of irrational decision makers and players in the market, especially you know, retail investors or even professional investors. And so understanding how to read market sentiment and then step back and sort of distance yourself from it and also understanding your own psychology in order to not be swept away by, um, by her mentality was important to perform as an investor. And so um, for me, that meant keeping my emotions very much at an even keel all the time, regardless of whether the market was doing a huge upswing or, or downswing on a given day, which actually then became very helpful when I um, joined Uber China because that was just a knife fight, right? It was a day-to-day battle for survival. You know, we were competing against DD who had billions to spend on the market. And so did we, we were, you know, being a very strapped sort of under-resourced team to one that was doing, you know, over a million trips a week. And in the meantime, there were fires that happened all the time, right? We got raided by the police. We had fraud drivers to our office. Uh, we had fake sexual assault cases created and spread all over social wow, media. This actually sounds like a knife fight. <laughs> It was literally, yeah, a knife fight and, and all these situations created immense pressure and just fires, right, that we had to deal with week to week. And as a GM, I was the face of the business on the ground, dealing with these incidences week to week while trying to scale the business. And so what I learned, I guess, the regulating my own emotions, staying calm under pressure, making decisions based on data and being quite decisive was actually very useful when it came to, uh, came to operating at least in that in the high pressure environment. The flip side was that, you know, I had received some feedback from my team on being always a bit like impenetrable and almost like too even keeled and a bit too emotionless. You know, if we can actually see what you're feeling more, we can see that you're also vulnerable and that you're human and you don't have to be perfect all the time in front of us. We know you're carrying this gigantic workload. If you can let us see that more, we would actually feel closer to you. You know, I, I really remembered that because I think in, in operating, it can't just be, you know, like cold logic. You can't just like white knuckle your way through things. There is like a very, very like human element to managing teams, right? And building a business with, with the team. So yeah, that was really valuable learning for me as well. Maybe just to dovetail quickly on that as well. How was that feedback presented to you? And why were you in a position to really hear that feedback and act on it? Because, you know, sometimes when you get feedback like this, you can obviously ignore, push away, this, that, and the other. But what was it about the feedback in terms of either the packaging or how you received it in terms of you actually acting on it? It was during a one-on-one with one of my directs. And the context was we had been the number one city at Uber by volume, by trips volume, for a few months by then. 
but because of an internal reorganization, like I wasn't as senior, you know, that was a disappointment for me professionally. Um, so that was a setback for me, but also for the team. And it was a moment where I had a clear choice to either quit and just say, screw this, the world is unfair. I, you know, we all worked so hard. We're number one. Like, what more do you want from us? And like, fuck this, right? And just go. I, I really thought about that or staying and leading the team through it, you know, no matter what. And um, seeing and just continuing to deliver good work. Yeah, and the team was looking to me to see how I would react and, and lead by example, right? Because if I looked demoralized, then they would be too. And we would probably just rapidly come down from being kind of like the biggest business by volume at Uber to, to somewhere different. So that was the moment when she had shared this feedback because she, I think she knew I was feeling a lot and that it wasn't a great moment for me. But then she was trying to like make me feel supported as well, right? And say, it's okay that your team is, is sort of like here for you. Yeah. And so ultimately I decided to like, you know, obviously stay and like get through it. And, and we stayed at the top for over six months and it was, it was all great. Um, because ultimately I think, you know, we all still had a lot to learn in, in building that business and, and it was a valuable journey and like, you know, a short term sort of bump. What I told the team at the time, I think I wrote an email was it's like a tennis match where you lose a game or a set, but you still have the match ahead of you and you still got the tournament ahead of you. So, you know, it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. Thank you for sharing that. Even just when you said that she said she had your back, the team had your back. I just felt it for just a second. I like started to just get slightly teary of like, it's just so touching when you know you're not alone. Because I think as a leader, you can often feel a lot of pressure. When that goes back to joining Stride and your work as a VC rather than like a institutional investor, I mean, a VC is still an institutional investor, but like a different type of institutional investor. Can we talk about the people side? Because you really, you have to sell. You have to be the one that founders want to work with. Yeah, uh, exactly. And, and to Brandon's earlier question about like, what were the learnings from operations that then maybe informed my time as a VC or how it worked as a VC? Yeah, the people element was definitely part of it. I think there are four main parts of the VC role, right? There's sourcing, selecting, investments or filtering, winning and supporting. And I think in each part, the people element is crucial. And that's where our experience as, as operational leaders does help a lot because we've had to work with a wide range of people on our teams. We've had to motivate people. We've had to sit down and, and have like tough feedback conversations with people. We've had to, you know, win trust uh, and influence. And so for each of these stages of the investment journey, uh, it's important. So in the, in the sourcing part, it's like, how do you create a good dynamic with the founder where they feel they can trust you, they want to work with you, and that you would add value? And how do you articulate your ability to add value to the business? The selecting part is, is less so, but it's more about how you internally collaborate as an investment team and get the most of your decision-making engine as an IC. Um, on winning, again, it's back to like foreign founder dynamics and trust, but also, again, your ability to to package and communicate why they should choose you over anyone else who has capital. And yeah, in the last stage in supporting, I think this was actually really important where I, I was working closely with 10 portfolio companies at Stride. And out of the 10, the stages of companies vary from pre-seed and then most of them were seed and then series A, series B. 
the founder profiles were also very different. Some of them were successful serial entrepreneurs. Some of them were first-time entrepreneurs who felt less comfortable in terms of where they were in their journey and at times out of their depth. And so with each of them, you have to tailor your communication style and your and, and how you work with them and how you deliver tough messages or how you build a relationship with them in order to eventually lead them to make the best decisions for the business. Because for me, it's really not about who's right and wrong or wrong, but as an investor and a board member, you're also no longer in the managing sort of execution sort of part of the business. You're more, you're on the governance side. And I often think that's also a bit of a coaching slash partnership side of the business. So there's some, sometimes a power dynamic between founders and investors where it's not always positive, sometimes hierarchical, sometimes there's an element of control, but I would never like to look at it that way because I'm used to being kind of at the right hand of the founder, right? And, and working closely as part of the team. And so how do you then design your own communication style and, and ways of working with founders that are uniquely suited to you, right? So for me, that's like all about building trust with each founder in a way that uh, is best for them, but also best for the business. Because ultimately it's not me making the decisions. It's about me helping them to get to the right decisions for the business. When you think about the joy that you had as the CEO of Spotahome, those moments where you really felt gratified in the role itself. How does that compare and contrast versus Stride VC? My curiosity is when it comes to being a VC, is it the same thing? Is it different? What is it for you? Yeah, it's definitely different. The source of, most of it's different. I think the source of satisfaction, I think from the operating side, maybe similar to you, a lot of it's with making decisions with the team and then seeing the team deliver or yourself delivering, right? Or just seeing results come through or experiments that, that are run and, and risks that are taken and that, that actually pay off and, and you learn something from it. Or actually seeing your, your team members develop, right? You spend time, you invest in them uh, and you see them progress in their career or you see them make improvements in, in how they work. And so there are many kind of areas where I felt a lot of satisfaction at Spot Home and, and areas where we, we made tangible improvements on the business. We improved the margins, we improved sort of the workflows or how, how resources were, were deployed. We reorganized you know, teams. So there's so many things that, that you can sort of point to and hold on to as like things that you've right, like quite tangible results. With investing, I think you need to be quite intrinsically driven in that like there isn't really a team that you're sitting with day to day because I think 90% of the time you spend is, is out there with founders or on boards, uh, often on your own. And so the feelings of satisfaction are, are different. It's like, it's about, you know, getting that constant stimulation from learning about new areas, new technologies and meeting new people, which is actually one of the biggest joys of, of the job for me, at least, is like meeting really interesting founders who really care about a given cause or give, care about what they're building, um, meeting inspirational like people right in the ecosystem, be it investors or founders um, that you otherwise wouldn't meet if you were just heads down focusing on one company. I don't think I had the chance to meet such a wide range of people in the past and, and learn from them. So I think from a personal growth perspective, that was very satisfying. And then at the same time, you know, obviously there's the satisfaction you get from winning kind of an investment opportunity. The founder chooses you and just have to work together. That's very exciting. And then all the milestones that the business might hit along the way, be it an up round, a nice fundraise, or be it, you know, you've helped them 
interview and hire a key executive for their team and, and that person's joined. So you, you do have those small sort of like milestones along the way, not small, but I guess multiple milestones along the way that you can celebrate with each business that you have the opportunity to back, which is nice. But it, it is less direct impact on the business, right? It's like you're not the, the one who's carrying the PL or like owning those numbers necessarily, but you get to be along for the ride. So the satisfaction is, is quite different and the stresses are, are also very different as well. That was going to be my question is, which one's more stressful? Sure, and both are actually stressful. But I think, actually, I had a couple more thoughts on, on what's like fun and, and satisfying about VC. So one of the main benefits is actually like having more control over your time and that you kind of can choose where you want to spend your time, be it marketing or developing a thesis on your own or, or, or otherwise, right? Or spend time on given investment opportunities. So there's less of that weekly treadmill of running a business. You're not obligated to be at a certain place at a certain time every week as much. And the satisfaction of actually being helpful and supporting founders on, on the journey, whether it's on the board or, or not on the board. But in terms of what's stressful about the role, I think it's always about sort of like identifying the next investment. So even though you've just made a few, right, it's what's the next one. And so it's a different treadmill from operating, but it's still a treadmill. And on a weekly basis, you need to make decisions that are mostly not reversible. So the pressure there for each decision is actually a lot higher. So it's not like you make a quick one-way door decision to run an experiment in ops. And then if it doesn't pay off, you, you don't do it, right? And you don't invest in that, that initiative. But every decision is basically non-reversible because once you've decided to turn down a company and not invest, you've turned it down. Uh, unless you're a multi-stage fund, it's, it's really hard to like kind of come back to it later and, and make a bet later when, when the company's looking to be in a better place. But once you've decided to invest in a given company, you commit it, right? So, so you can't just like reverse that decision. So, and then the next part of that is like, you meet lots of new companies all the time, which is really interesting and, and fun, but 98 to 99% of those companies you will not invest in. And so for a founder, also fundraising, like their time is their most important asset. And so it's important to be able to say no quickly. And it's about saying a lot of quick no's. And so saying no is like, Difficult emotionally, um, at least for me, especially if you're predispositioned to root for the founder and you can, and, and for me, I have a kind of maybe an opt optimistic bias where I can always see, you know, why they believe in the business and why it could work. And so, and so for me to have to do that every week um, and ideally quite quickly and in the nicest way possible is actually like quite a lot of pressure and, and not, not very pleasant. And, uh, and then the next piece is maybe just the fact that you need to be on your game all the time. So every meeting pretty much is a high stakes meeting, be it a board meeting, be it a one-on-one -on -one with a new founder, interviewing an executive or for a current founder or speaking at a conference or socializing and meeting other investors like, or meeting an LP. All of these are high stakes meetings. And so you can't just really like chill out, even though you have control over your time. And again, you can, you can pace yourself. But, but I say there's always that pressure. This is a unique role where there are many demands on your time. So there's often like friends who say, hey, I know a founder. Can you help them with some advice? Or can you, can you look at them? Like either it's a real opportunity or it's just people asking for favors, which is, which is totally fine. But your time is not unlimited, right? So in operating, I think solo thinking time is important and already quite scarce when you have lots of team meetings and, and all that. But in investing... Is similar or even 
or even more so, because you have to really guard your time and also be um, able to prioritize how you use your time in the best way possible. So when you're on many boards, juggling that workload and also sourcing new investments uh, and, and trying to carve out time to think becomes, becomes really challenging. I always struggle for carving out time to think. It ends up being one of those where I'm like, people skills, can't measure them. Who knows if it's important? Thinking time, not going to immediately produce something. Therefore, the urgency issue will take priority. How did you carve out your thinking time? And are there any techniques that might work for the rest of us? Yeah, and I'll just quickly add something to that, especially with what you do, Cleo, because when you think about here's a market, here's a totally different market, here's some kind of product opportunity, here's a radically different product opportunity. I mean, it's all over the place. So the quality thinking is almost a requirement to really understand, is there legs to what this thing is as opposed to what B is or C is, I suppose, as opposed to working internally within one company where you have one market, you have one product, perhaps multiple, but but it's a lot easier in that sense in terms of just like the contextual understanding of what you're trying to resolve. Yeah, and I think to that point, Brendan, I think that's where the context switching becomes more intense in venture. Even though at SEO, you context switch all the time and that, that could be tiring, but in venture, you're context switching between different industries in a given week. As a generalist investor, I think I would meet founders from maybe five different spaces or sometimes four in a given week. And so you have to really develop, I guess, your own mental model around investment decision-making in order to look at look at them efficiently, but look at them thoroughly at the same time. At the same time, yeah, it can be quite demanding, right, intellectually. Yeah, and to Beth's point, I guess carving out time, it's, it's really about self-discipline and adventure because no one's really telling you how you should use your time, right? So it's really about creating those gaps for yourself and then like whatever technique you choose to use, whether it's time boxing or, or actually time, creating like an output that you're committing yourself to or a deadline you're committing yourself to, it's then really prioritizing that time above many other things because it can always be hijacked by other people's requests. And so it's really about, about that. And oftentimes I think I, the weekends um, become good opportunities to do solo thinking work or sometimes even just like desktop research, even though it's not ideal. Like I, I think sometimes it is the best time to do it because no one, no one's really reaching out to you. It's interesting to hear how solitary the experience is. I guess I'd always thought of it as actually quite nice because you have like a small group that are all of people who are all thinking about these things together and looking at different markets. And so I had a vision of it actually being more collegiate. So you're not running a team, but you're like, you are a team. As a team, you do look at investments together and you have probably like multiple touch points during the week, but especially maybe on a designated time, like a Monday, where you look at things together and you debate and, and that process is really enjoyable. But then at the same time, most of your work time during the week is either on your own research or in your own meetings with founders, because often they are one-on-one, unless you're you're later in the investment process. And so, yeah, it is quite a lone wolf kind of role. And at the same time, super social, right? Because you're meeting people outside of your own firm a lot. And so it is a unique role in that sense, that your attention is sort of bifurcated to these like super sort of like um, extroverted social part of the work when it comes to deal sourcing or, or going to a conference or, or an event or something, or just meeting founders to like very solitary, where you're really trying to like drill down into an industry, develop, develop a thesis and think. And so you really need to create time for both and be okay with both. Whereas in operating, I think we're often in the middle where like you're always with a team in a meeting with somebody on, on the team or in the company. 
and and you're looking at content. You, you're you're deep in the business. You understand the business, but at the same time, you're not actively producing as a CEO, not as much as as maybe an individual contributor would. So I feel like you're sort of always in the middle. Whereas in VC, I think it's more on the extremes. If uh, Brandon wanted to become an investor, as an example, what should I do to make that happen? Do you think so? If there's a a random CEO out there that really wants to transition into being an investor. What is it that they should do to try to make that happen? There's a few things I would suggest doing. Ideally, you've done some angel investing already and you're able to articulate why you like it or or what your investment thesis could be, um, or at least the areas where you generally find interesting or functions or horizontals where where you can contribute and, and have an edge. And ideally... You know, I think you've started to build a network of investors, founders, um, operators. Uh, many people do this through being part of an operator syndicate or just staying in touch with maybe alumni from their company who have become founders. Um, there are many ways to do this, but I think it's actually doing investments with your own money and also having a network. I think that always helps. And then being able to articulate where you have an edge, be it on the operating side, like the company value adding side. Or on your network, you know, where you are able to source unique opportunities that no one else has access to, or spaces, right, where where you're able to be better than others. And so, I would think that doing it part time, like as a hobby, helps. But finding a firm is really not like finding a, a job in that it's more like finding a home and a family that you want to be with for the next ten years. So I would you know, suggest like spending time on, on that as well, right? Just getting to know people in the ecosystem and, and not rushing into it and just understanding what flavors of VC firms there are because there, there are ones that could be pre-seed investment firms that are smaller and maybe write lots of checks and have a super diversified portfolio and then a very hands-off approach. They're not on the board of a given business or there are others that may be more, more active, more hands-on, maybe run a more concentrated portfolio and typically, you know, they're lead investors and they want to be on the boards of companies. And so like, that's a different type of invent- firm. And so figuring out what better suits you and also what stage you would ideally like to invest at is, is important. And what stage is basically like, how much data do you need to be comfortable to, to get to conviction on a given investment? You know, are you okay with just two people at a deck at a conceptual level? Or do you need to see numbers? And if you need to see numbers, like how, how much? Do you need cohort data? Do you need like multiple years of revenue? Or, or are you okay with a new post-launch company? Um, so thinking through some of those aspects or maybe like talking to other investors about how they develop their thesis, I think would generally be helpful. And then I guess decide how comfortable you are with saying no. I think that might be one of my takeaways from today. <laughs> you always think about the yeses, but thinking about the no's. Yeah, it's, it's a core part of, of the role, really. And, and that's the majority of your your interactions with with founders that you, you may not invest in. I have about 400 more questions, but maybe I'll save it for our next time that we go out for lunch because unfortunately we're rapidly running out of time. Just before we finish, what is the one thing you would like our listeners to take away from our conversation today? Assuming the audience are CLOs who are considering a move to investing, I would spend time like reflecting on yourself on where you get energy from, what kind of work uh, in your day-to-day job you know, has given you energy versus taken energy away, and also 
where you're strong versus what you don't enjoy doing. Just be really clear on that because I think that should help you kind of get to conviction on whether it's continuing to operate or, or go into investing, right? Assuming, assuming most people would want to optimize for work that gives them the most joy and that they're, they're best at. Yeah, but I also would say like, yeah, making a switch or, or going into a different kind of work is, is not an irreversible decision either. And especially I think in the US or more mature venture markets, you, you have seen people switch back and forth, which is okay as well. But I think it's just important to, to go into each decision and thought process like informed and kind of know why, why you're drawn to it and why you want to go after it. Thank you, Cleo, for joining us on The Operations Room. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe or leave us a comment, and we will see you next week. Bye.